electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Homes.com knows that when it comes to home shopping, it's never just about the house or condo. It's about the home. And what makes a home is more than just the house or property. It's the location and neighborhood. If you have kids, it's also schools, nearby parks, and transportation options. That's why Homes.com goes above and beyond to bring home shoppers the in-depth information they need to find the right home. And when I say in-depth, I'm talking deep. Each listing features comprehensive information about the neighborhood, complete with a video guide. They also have details about local schools with test scores, state rankings, and student-to-teacher ratio. They even have an agent directory with the sales history of each agent. So when it comes to finding a home, not just a house, this is everything you need to know, all in one place. Homes.com. We've done your homework. My mission is simple, to make you money. I'm here to level the playing field for all investors. There's always a bull market somewhere, and I promise to help you find it. Mad Money starts now. Hey, I'm Kramer. Welcome to Mad Money. Welcome to Kramerica. I'll be one of my friends. I'm just trying to help you make some money. My job is not just to entertain, but to educate and teach. So call me at 1-800-743-CBC or tweet me at Jim Kramer. These days are filled with gloom which is par for the course in the miserable month of September, you see gloom everywhere to the point where it's undeniable. Like today, with Dow tumbled 107 points, S&P shed 0.22%, NASDAQ declined 0.23%. Stocks were down much more in the middle of the day, which has also been the way things have been going. I wish it weren't the case, just like I wish it doesn't rain every day. I wish I had an umbrella few. I don't. But as a serious gardener, I'd say that without rain, we'd have no vegetables, no delicious tomatoes and peppers, and no jar of Jim's none better tomato sauce, let alone the hundred I have in the freezer. What do I mean by gloom? It's a way of looking at things that colors them, everything, in the wrong light. It's kind of like the, uh, the way that Adobe Firefly gives you the wrong background to your Instagram ad if you screw it up. You know, artificial intelligence being replaced by artificial stupidity. It's just, it's the lighting. It's the shading. It's the color. It's the dark. Let me give you some examples of what I mean by gloom. Today, we learned that CEO Bob Iger from Disney is going to take a chunk of the company's capital, some $60 billion over 10 years, and he's going to put it in the parks. Now, in a vacuum, you might say, that's a brilliant idea. What's the most lucrative part of Disney? The parks. Where's the most surefire modernization of the company's vast library of intellectual property? The parks. Where are there so many lines that they need to build more events and rides? The parks. What's the one thing Netflix doesn't have? The parks. So what should happen to the stock? Hey, maybe things go higher, maybe much higher. No way, not in this market, not with the gloom, the shroud. Disney stock is actually down 3%. And make no mistake, I think the market's got this one wrong. Iger's huge investment in the parks is great news. It shows he's confident that Disney's balance sheet is in much better shape than people realize, to the point where it can't afford to buy the one-third of Hulu it doesn't already own from Comcast, parent of this network, especially if they can get some strategic partners for football. They just need to stream you the players you might have on your fantasy team. 55 million people play fantasy. I say they hook up with Apple uh, and Disney and Vision Pro. In other words, so ESPN 
hooks up with Vision Pro, and then you get to watch on one screen all of your skill players, and the other screen all the games you care about. But you see, that's way too creative, and this is a gloomy market. So Disney stock gets clubbed like a baby seal. People must think Iger's taking the company's capital and throwing it into a Disney dumpster, then setting the dumpster on fire. Just a relentless decline for this stock. Really one of the worst I've seen of major stocks. Worse, once the analysts see the stock down really big like it was today, some of them just can't take the pain anymore. That's when they throw in the towel. There's just no way they can disagree with the crowd. They just aren't up to it. Well, some feel like me and want to buy, as I explained to the CBC Investing Club members at our Thursday noon meeting. I, noon meeting, I don't trust the analysts not to capitulate. At least go negative. That's what they do. After three straight, you know, after riding the stock down, this is probably the level where they say, enough, $82, line the sand. They got to get out. That's how it happens. You want gloom? Okay, how about Oracle? Last week, Oracle's conference call was roundly pan because the analysts decided en masse that the quarter was miserable and the forecast was worse. Worse, the stock got blasted. And then the second day, a prominent analyst broke ranks and downgraded it, like I expect to see from the Disney analyst tomorrow. Oracle's stock got bashed until it was finally able to have a dead feline bounce. Last night, though, CEO Safrakats came on our air and told us a fantastic story about Oracle's story where demand's phenomenal. And even the orders for the much derided $28 billion server acquisition were off the charts. These were point-blank statements. It's point-blank positives. You can't go back on them as CEO. Kat said the board may be prepping something above. And when I pushed her about a bigger buyback, well, she didn't deny it. She said that, that Larry Ellison, the founder whom I have tremendous respect for, is working every day on artificial intelligence. She said the biggest issue in terms of earnings is that they can't put up data centers fast enough to meet all the demand. Once these data centers are complete, they have terrific profit margins because they don't require any people. All that said, right here, right now, because of the gloom, because of that focus, because of that filter, people have the temerity to doubt both Sofra Katz and Larry Ellison, both of them. Never mind that when these two put their heads together, they will steamroll anyone. In a world of relentless negativity, Wall Street would rather pretend they just don't exist. They don't believe. Me, I live in fear of missing what they're doing, which is why we're buying Oracle for the Travel Trust right here. Another example. See Starbucks today? Here's a stock that has fallen from 115 to 95. Today, an analyst broke the buy, buy ranks and downgraded it, using the convenient China woes as a reason for the downgrade. In a gloomy market, everyone's worried about China, right? There's no way China could go better. Sure, I saw long lines of Chinese Apple stores, but the bears don't care. The analysts downgraded Starbucks from China simply because they, I think they couldn't take the pain any longer. Nothing new, just dread of the dread. So why not cut and run? On the one hand, it's perfectly timed. Now someone else and other analysts will downgrade Starbucks, too. Tomorrow, probably. Because they don't want to get caught holding the bag when China uh, suddenly lowers the boom. It's a vicious cycle down, and it's raining way too heavily to stop, which is why I predict more pain for Starbucks in the short run. But yet again, I think China's getting overly priced in because the Chinese need companies to hire. And if you're opening one in every nine hours as Starbucks is, they're hiring. Call me a buyer. Next up, let's go there. Let's go to the herd of pachyderms in the room. Let's go to why I think this market's really been going down for a very long time, and that's the stock of NVIDIA. Here's a stock that seems like it has a millstone the size of Empire State Building around its neck. That last great quarter is now a mirage, as if we have so much rainfall that it's flooded Noah's Ark. It's a gloomy market, and here's what happens. We interpret everything based on the gloom. 
It goes like this. NVIDIA stock's going down because there's something wrong, right? Or else it wouldn't be going down in the first place. We concoct reasons. Maybe it was too high to begin with. Maybe business is slowed. Maybe the decline in, uh, in business partner a arms holding stock is signaling that things have gotten weaker. Maybe artificial intelligence is all made up or at least massively overhyped. Doesn't matter if any of this stuff is true because right now NVIDIA is about the gloom not the facts. The fact is, they have the most powerful chips in the world that can allow computers to handle speech queries and processing in the blink of an eye. That hasn't changed, only the perception has. As for me, I refuse to be held hostage by the gloom. When a stock I like goes down, whether it be at Disney or Starbucks, an Oracle, or even Nvidia, that's a buying opportunity, people. Maybe not today. Maybe not today because the shroud's draped all over the exchange in the NASDAQ, too. But I'm not going to take my cue from the disgusted and the bewildered who panic every time the averages go down and their stocks are going down with it. If you let them, the others, the sellers, the gloomsters do your thinking, you'll be selling into weakness instead of buying into it. You'll be buying into strength when you should be letting things go. Bottom line, if you let the gloom control here, I think you'll be making the class mistake so many others make. Rather than freaking out, you need to realize that it's September. It's just the September rain. Nothing more that's controlling your emotions. Once we get through this seasonally tough period, things will feel very differently. And the gloom will finally lift. Let's go to Stephen in Florida. Stephen. Jim. Stephen. Long-time follower, first-time caller. Excellent. former Philly guy, still a Birds fan. All right. There you go. My my question to you, I know you got time constraints. My question to you, Coca-Cola, earnings are due out 1025. Do you expect a beat on earnings and Yes, I do. At the current stock and at the current stock um, price, would you add more shares to one's No, I don't, I don't think there's any reason to. I don't think there's any I'll tell you why there's no reason to because it, uh, as far as I'm concerned, until you know the Fed is done or you know maybe we go into recession, you can't really make up your mind. I mean, look at PepsiCo, which I like more than Coca-Cola. I mean, they have a 2.84% yield. They're growing a little faster than Coca-Cola. It's at 178, and I just think it's in what I call no man's land. Therefore, I can't make a stand. Sharon in New York. Sharon. Hi, Jim. Booyah to you. Booyah, right back. Yes, yes, this is the question. My son just graduated from boot camp and um, Fort Lauderdale Fire Department. Okay. And he's now on shift, and he is absolutely on a bread-and-water diet because he puts every dollar into DraftKings. Uh, he has really? that much faith in that stock. Um, now, I want to know what is your long-term outlook. Well, I think he should be putting every dollar into an index fund until he's got $10,000 in the index fund. I happen to like the stock at DraftKings very much. I think they're doing well, but in this case, diversification must trump an individual stock, even as good as one that's up a great deal that I think is incredibly well run. All right, if you let the gloom determine your thinking, you're going to be selling into weeks instead of buying. You're going to be downgrading stocks analysts instead of upgrading them or holding them. You'll be buying in a strength when things get better, and that's not what I want on Man Money tonight. Instacart was an instant success on Wall Street after its IPO today. So why do I think this deal is an important litmus test for the market? I'm going to give you my take on the debut. Could, could surprise you. Then what should we do with this rally in the price of oil? I'm going off the charts to see what the future could hold. And a buyback to some could signal a buy signal. 
But why do I think you should still proceed with caution? I'm covering some stocks with monster buybacks and sharing if they're beneficial or hurtful to the overall business and whether they're just plain old mistakes. So stay with Kramer. Don't miss a second of Mad Money. Follow at Jim Kramer on Twitter. Have a question? Tweet Kramer. Hashtag Mad Tweets. Send Jim an email to madmoney at CNBC.com or give us a call at 1 800 743 CNBC. Miss something? Head to madmoney.cnbc.com. Fact Running a business is not getting easier on your wallet. With higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. Also, a fact. Smart businesses are reducing costs and headaches by graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. See how you'll profit with NetSuite, and then you can think of all the ways you could be spending the money you save. Company retreat in Malibu, anyone? By popular demand, NetSuite is offering a -a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to NetSuite.com to start saving. When you're hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging to connect with candidates faster. Plus, 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed. Listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visible visibility at indeed.com slash mad money. Just go to indeed.com slash mad money right now and support this show by saying you heard about indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash mad money. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need indeed. The IPO market is back. Last week arm holdings went public with a bang. Today, we saw the same thing from Instacart, the online grocery that was the, you know, it's that ordering and delivery platform. I don't know if you've used it. It's kind of interesting. The price is still at 30 bucks, only for the stock to open at 42 bucks. Hooray. Before pulling back to $33 and change at the close. Not so good if you bought it at the opening price. Very good if you got in on the deal. The Instacart IPO is an important limit test for the market because while Arm Holdings was the first major tech deal of the year, Arm's a large, mature company. In fact, Arm used to be publicly traded for 18 years before it was taken private in 2016. A couple of years ago, NVIDIA actually offered to buy those guys for $40 billion. Just an extremely high-quality semiconductor designer. A lot of AI. Instacart's a totally different kind of company. This is the first high-profile venture capital-backed tech company to come public since the IPO market collapsed under its own weight near the end of 2021. It's their own fault. You know what? I'm calling this one a disruptor. 
If it had come public in 2020, it would have gotten a much higher price tag. But last year, the disruptors got disrupted by the Federal Reserve's relentless rate hikes. And while many of them have rebounded in 2023, we didn't know what kind of appetite there was for a stock like Instacart. Now, I should say right off the bat that this company and its team of investment bankers led by Goldman Sachs were very realistic about the market's level of demand for a story like this one. Case in point, in early 2021, Instacart did a private fundraise that valued the company at a ridiculous, ludicrous $39 billion. But when they started marketing their IPO a few weeks ago, they, st- they shot the deal with a pie valuation of less than $10 billion. Get a little buzz going. Talk about a haircut that's a full buzz. It's a full buzz with some skull. And even some flex of gray matter spattered right to the curb, too. Yeah, that low. The IPO price range was raised a couple of bucks. It ultimately came public at the high end of the new range. But even at the deal price of 30 bucks, Instacart had a fully diluted valuation of just $9.995 billion. $9.95 billion. I mean, which is so much lower than the last round. A true down round. And that alone gives you some important context. Of course, I'm not complaining. I'm glad they priced the Instacart deal at a level where it was actually enticing. We don't need a dud right now. At this point in the IPO cycle, the book runners, again, Goldman Sachs, are purely trying to lure people back to the stock market casino with underpriced merchandise, as they always do at the beginning of the new cycle, which is where we are. Now, though, Instacart's up substantially from where it priced, and we got to ask ourselves, is this worth buying? So let's play a little Know Your IPO to figure this one out, and it is not easy. If you haven't used Instacart, they hook you up with personal shoppers who pick up what you need from more than 1,400 grocers around the country. As of June, they had 7.7 million monthly active users who spend an average of $317 per month on the platform. They take a small cut of every transaction. They have a higher quality subscription service, and they also have an advertising business where packaged food companies pay for better placement on the app. How about the numbers? As I've told you endlessly over the past 18 months, tech investors have very different priorities than they used to. In the old days, they only concerned themselves with revenue growth. Now they want actual profitability, even if it comes at the cost of slower growth. Instacart's been following that same pivot to profitability. Their total orders grew by 18% last year, but in the first half of 2023, they were up less than 1%. Wow, big deceleration. Gross transaction volume was up 15% last year, now only up 4% in the first half of this year. Red flag. To be fair, Instacart's revenue trends actually look a bit better. Total revenue growth came in at 39% in 2022 before growing at a still healthy 31% of the, of the first half of the year. Not bad. Thanks to a 34% increase in transaction revenue, mostly coming from their Instacart enterprise platform, White Label Offerings. On the profitability front, Instacart's absolutely headed in the right direction. Their margins have been soaring over the past 18 months, even on the most stringent measure of earnings. The company started breaking even in the second half of last year. They did $242 million of net income in the first half of this year. I'm giving it one of these. Finally, after posting negative uh, results for cash flow property activities in 2020 and in 2021, the company reported $277 million in positive cash flow from operating activities last year. They get a lot of loot for that. And in the first half of 2023, that number was up 140% year over year. So is Instacart worth buying up here in light of those numbers? I got to tell you, I'm, I'm kind of torn. The bull thesis here is pretty straightforward, right? Instacart has got a popular concept. They've been very effective about pivoting to profitability over the past 18 months, which is, you know, what I like to see, the pivot to profitability. They've proven this could be a profitable concept, and until recently that was a very open question because so many other companies tried and failed to do online grocery delivery. I mean, you can even argue that Amazon hasn't really been able to nail grocery delivery, even though it's been six years since they bought Whole Foods. Apart from the newfound profitability, though, Instacart deserves a lot of credit for the impressive market share that's established in the grocery space. 85% of the grocers in the United States are on their platform. I I like that. 
On the other hand, though, clear bear case going here, too. For starters, Instacart's growth seems to be evaporating before our eyes. Again, they had to pivot to profitability. Nobody would have cared if this IPO, if they hadn't. The trade-off looks like it's been pretty huge. The fact that Instacart's order growth has almost disappeared entirely is very discouraging to me. We really want to see some acceleration in the order growth, or at least gross transaction volume, getting more out of existing customers. If they can't do that, Instacart needs to generate a lot more money from selling ads, which a lot of people are very excited about, or subscriptions. So they could happen, not a given. At the same time, I'm worried that there's some window dressing in Instacart's pivot to profitability. We know they can put up great earnings numbers, but uh, right about around the IPO. But are they sustainable? I have no idea. I, I, there's no way to tell. And then there's a more fundamental concern. Is Instacart truly indispensable to the supermarket partners? Now, I'm not sure. Maybe our nation's best grocers will build out their own digital ordering system, allowing them to cut Instacart out of the operation. Right now, I think Instacart has a good argument to to make, which is that its platform not only facilitates ordering and delivery for its grocery partners, it also brings tons of digital customers to those stores thanks to its user base. But that monthly active user base is less than 8 million people, and it must grow. Amazon Prime has 200 million subscribers. Albertsons has almost 36 million program, uh, members in its loyalty program. Walmart's got 29 million people in Walmart Plus. By comparison, Instacart's user base seems kind of tiny, doesn't it? Now, there's a price where I might be willing to take a chance on Instacart, but it, it's still substantially below where the stock is currently trading. I thought maybe you could justify these levels if you value the stock at a modest discount to something like an Uber or DoorDash. But these two numbers have tremendous, these companies have tremendous growth numbers. If you value it more like Lyft, the worst of the bunch, Instacart's worth in the mid-30s at the most, which is exactly where it's trading now. Not a lot of upside. Bottom line, Instacart's got a good brand name, but it's, uh, it's hard for me to get super excited about it at these levels. Imagine if it went under the 30s. Wouldn't that be terrific? If you love the story, though, you got my blessing to put on a small position here. But personally, I, down 10 to 15% is where I would like to buy it. Man, money's back in for the break. Coming up, an opportunity may be bubbling in oil, but not for long. Don't miss the geyser when we return. You seek the key, but first, you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system up to a 313-mile range and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, The ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. You can earn four times points on your top two eligible spending categories every month, like transit, U.S. restaurants, and gas stations. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Four times points on up to $150,000 in purchases per year. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. What do we do with this relentless rally in the price of oil? Every time crude ticks higher, it weighs on the entire stock market because higher energy prices make it harder for the Federal Reserve to stop its tightening. Now, it could come up at tomorrow's Fed meeting, and it won't be positive. Right now, if you're a bull on stocks, you're desperate to see this oil move run out of steam. Could that be in the cards? To answer that question, we're going off the charts with Carly Garner. She's that brilliant technician who's the co-founder of DeCarly Trading, author of Higher Probability Commodity Trading, 
because she's our resident commodities expert. Remember, she called the peak in crude roughly a year ago when it was less at these levels, right before it came back to Earth. Does she think it's going to happen again? Okay, let's take a look at this weekly chart of the West Texas Intermediate Crude Futures. Uh, with the CFTC's commitments of traders, the COT report, that's what we're looking at here, that's all COT report, uh, that comes out every week and gives us details on the holdings of the small speculators, large speculators, and commercial hedgers. What we care about are the large speculators, meaning professionals, money managers, that's the green line, okay? Those are actual people putting money to work, betting in a particular direction. Lately, Garner witnessed an unusual conundrum in this data, an unsustainably widespread between the market sentiment of industry insiders and the net long futures position held by institutional money managers. See, according to bullish consensus sentiment index, about 70% of those polled are bullish on crude. Yet when you look at the commitment of traders data, large speculators only have a net long position of roughly 300,000 futures contracts, which is bullish, but not extremely bullish. By comparison, their net loan position was around half a million futures contracts a year ago when she called the top, and it peaked at 750000 in 2018. In recent weeks, though, these money managers have been doing more buying, and if that continues, Garner thinks it could, send enough to, it could be enough to send oil right back to the 100 level, maybe more. What else? Check out this chart of the seasonal pattern in West Texas crude. Garner points out that historically, oil tends to peak in mid to late October after multiple weeks of seasonal support. In other words, if you're hoping for oil to stop running now, you might need to wait another month. Plus, while higher fuel prices are starting to really hurt the airlines, travel remains strong versus where we were in 2019. Even with the Fed mandated slowdown, there's still plenty of demand for oil, so we're not there yet. Okay, now let's check out a third chart. I'm going to zoom in and look at the extremely long-term monthly chart of West Texas crude. When you look at the monthly, Garner notes that while oil prices swooned over this past spring, they held in the low 60s, above the uptrend line that dates back to the 2016 bottom. At the same time, we saw a similar downtrend line that dates back to 2010, which currently comes in nearly 101 a barrel. All right. Garner suspects it'll likely be an act as a magnet meaning it could be very easy for oil to go from the low 90s, where we are now, to the 100s. So everything's pointing to this level, okay? At the same time, when you check out the relative strength index, the RSI, which is down here, uh, you can see it pointing higher with plenty of room to run before it's overbought. This is a very bullish pattern right there. More evidence for Garner that oil's not finished going higher. However, other than in the aftermath of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, you've got to remember that West Texas crude simply hasn't been able to hold above 100 bucks a barrel for any extended period of time since fracking became a widespread practice here in the United States. As Garner sees it, there's just too much supply sitting in the ground in all these shale plays, and above $100, producers will start getting aggressive about pumping it out of the ground again. That's why, even though she expects oil to keep rallying here, she also expects that the rally will be capped at around $101. Right there. Now, uh, if she's wrong, oil could revisit its 2011 high. That would be pretty spectacular. Uh, near 115. It may be hit the, ne- the next trend line near 120. But Garner thinks it's very unlikely for oil to make an extended move o- over 101. You need major geopolitical turmoil coming out of nowhere like we had when the war in Ukraine first broke. Now, how about the weekly oil futures? Just like the monthly chart, this picture tells Garner that $101 a barrel is in the cards. We keep coming back to that level, and she keeps saying it's going to happen. Oil's weakness earlier this year found a nice floor of support. You can see, just bottomed, all right? And, and we've basically been bouncing between 75 and 101. As Garner sees it, that range is the new equilibrium. It's likely where we would be uh, the whole time if Russia hadn't 
invaded Ukraine. Now, Carter does expect some rough waters around $92 where oil made it today. There's a sharp downtrend line that coincides with this price, and it could act as a ceiling. So you got to look in all these different lines. There's the downtrend line. Okay. That could be a ceiling. Uh, still, if we get enough strong economic news, like stabilizing interest rates or anything remotely possible from China, which I don't know if we're going to get, but it could happen, then she thinks triple-digit oil is again very likely. You see where she keeps pushing us? Triple-digit oil, not like the peak that she called last year. Of course, as Garner always tells us, the cure for higher commodity prices is higher commodity prices. In the long run, oil will always be a boom-bust industry because higher prices give producers a reason to drill. And when the new oil hits the market, the price comes back down. At the same time, once oil gets high enough, you also see demand destruction thanks to a cost-conscious consumer. And that seemed to me to be very close to where we are. Now, if you take a look at the Baker use rate count, it comes out on Fridays. You can see the U.S. producers were actually reducing their operating rates early this year due to sluggish oil prices. People find this unbelievable that oil could have such a quick ramp, but not these. The orders not keep up. I mean, look at this. They've added three rigs during this period where oil's exploded. However, the recent rally in crude has finally gotten them to use a few more rigs, although so far the increase is marginal. You got to watch this number because if more rigs come online, that's going to put a lid on oil. And it's important to note that the International Energy Agency has released data recently showing that our oil companies have started pumping more oil in the last few weeks. When I looked at the data for last week, it seems like they're pumping a lot more oil. But the bottom line, the charts interpreted by Carly Garner suggest oil could easily make a run for the low triple digits if it clears this final hurdle around 92 bucks. But based on everything else she's seeing, she doesn't expect $100 oil to be particularly sticky. In fact, Garner would turn the bear, bearish the moment we hit 101. Plus, a month from now, the seasonal pattern turns against crude. So as she sees it, there's likely one last leg higher before the relentless oil rally finally fizzles. I myself am very concerned about that one leg higher because I think that's going to cause a lot of chatter about how we're about to go finally right through the moon because these bulls can't take it. These different analysts at all these firms, they just all of them are going to come out of the woodwork and say we're going to 150. Let's go to Adam in Texas. Adam. Yes, Jim, I'm here. Yes, Adam, tell me what's going on. Well, I got a lot of money with PLL, Piedmont Lithium, and I was wondering what your thoughts are on Lithium Americas or... Uh, way too speculative. I keep hearing in my background that Elon Musk wants the price of lithium down. If, uh, by the way, what he wants, he gets. Let's go to Mark in Wisconsin. Mark. Dr. Kramer, thank yes. you for taking my call. Quite welcome. I uh, got a small tanker company for you. They're based in London. Uh, they have a strong and robust partnership uh, with Enterprise on the Houston Shipping Channel. They uh, haul LPG, petroleum Ooh. gas, ammonia, yes. and they're getting into carbon capture. Tickers NVGS. Yes, this is one of the few. Absolutely. Very few uh, ship companies I recommend. Most of them are gunslingers, not this one. And it's LPG. It's not oil. I think you do have a good one. I think going into the winter, NVGS is a great idea. And I thank you for bringing it to our, to our viewers' attention. Now, the charts interpreted by Carly Garner say that oil, even though it's been rallying lately, may have one more leg higher. Don't freak out. She thinks 101 could be the peak. Much more mad money at GXC Technology, Discover, and Synchrony Financial have all repurchased a ton of stock this year. But could these moves be all fluff or real cattle to get behind it? Are these, are these big hat no cattle? Let's dig into the top names in the S&P with monster buybacks this year. And when you hear the word super cycle, is that something worth getting excited about? Or should you run from a super cycle? I'll give you my take. Know your calls rapid fire tonight since you're simple lightning round. So stay with Kramer. 
to talk to you about buybacks, but before I do that, there's something really exciting that I want to share with you today. The reason it's so special is because it's just for you, our Mad Money viewers. You always hear me talk about the work I do for the special community that is the CNBC Investing Club. Now, for the next two weeks only, I'm going to share a little taste of the work that I do with Jeff Marks during the day. So let me give you an example of what you can get. Now, we're uh, talking about buybacks today. And in our 1020 a.m. meeting this morning, I told Investing Club members that one place I'm expecting a big buyback is Oracle. See, I spoke with the CEO yesterday, South for Cats, so you may have money viewers got the first-hand look at how Oracle doesn't actually see demand slowing, but anything is accelerating. Today, I gave club members my takeaway of that interview. That's really what I do at the 1020. And I think the market should have paid far more attention to what Safricat said about the possibility of the board going for a buyback. Instead, the market completely ignored it. I think it's ignoring it at its own peril. Therefore, I think you should join the club, all right? and get more inside news just like that. No one's going to get it unless you join. That's why CNBC is giving an exclusive offer only available to Mad Money viewers. So, look, grab your phone, open your camera, put it to QR code, go to cnbc.slash Jim Cramer, cnbc.com slash Jim Cramer. And I hope to see you in a matter of speaking at the next monthly meeting, which happens to be this week. It's happening Thursday at noon. And uh, I think that's a pretty good color coming. I've been working on it all week. That's technically what I do, and I think you'll like it. So now let's go back to our regularly scheduled programming on the buyback monsters. Now, in an uncertain market, you need a lot of protection. I like to look for concrete things to fall back on, which is why this week we're running a series on the bonds, on these buyback monsters, the ones, the two gigantic ones, the companies, the SP 500, that have been the largest repurchasers of their own stock here to date. Not every stock with a huge buyback is worth owning. You need to dig down into the fundamentals, too. But it certainly helps to have the company buying stock right alongside you. That's what I expect happened with Oracle. I expect that happen soon. Last night, I covered some high-quality buybacks, the oil refiners, some okay ones like Fox Corp, and then a lackluster one like State Street. Tonight, I'm going to go over the buyback monsters that, frankly, didn't work at all. Then tomorrow, we're going to get the higher-quality names. It's more important to steer clear of the bad ones than it is to identify the good ones. Remember, while Wall Street tends to love all buybacks indiscriminately, long-term, a buyback only makes sense if the stock is undervalued and the business is improving. Otherwise, they'd be better off spending that money on virtually anything else. The worst buybacks are the ones where it seems like management's retiring shares because they can't think of anything better to do. You never want to buy. Never want to buy a stock that only has an aggressive buyback going for it and nothing else. So let me walk you through some situations where that was the case. Suboptimal examples. Let's start with a company called D as in dog, X as in X-ray, C as in Charlie, DXC Technology. Now, this company, unfortunately, has retired 10.8% of its share count this year alone, making it the fourth largest percentage buyback from the S&P 500. Now, DXC is a technology consultant similar to Kramer Fave Accenture, except worse. It was formed in 2017 when the old Hewlett Packard Enterprise merged its consulting division, not the HP entirely, but its consulting division, with CSC. Since then, the stock has been a serial disappointer. Now, a year ago, it looked like DXC might get a takeover bit. People were pretty excited about it, but no deal had materialized. And by this March, management said the talks had fallen apart. Then a week later, the SEC announced charges against the company, accusing them of making misleading financial disclosures. Only an $8 million fine, but any kind of accounting irregularities you know I think are a red flag. In mid-May, GXC managed to report a solid quarter, and they brought in a new chief financial officer turning the page of the previous year. 
At least I thought. They also committed to an additional $1 billion repurchase program. Management gleefully said that equates to roughly 19% of the share count on its conference call. Oh, people got excited about that. Unfortunately, when DXC reported again a little over a month ago, they delivered a huge sale and earnings miss with weak guidance for the next quarter. And they slashed the four-year forecast by 17% to boot. That caused a wholesale abandonment of the stock. No fewer than five analysts downgraded it in response. And who can blame them? In response, the stock lost almost 30% of its value. Single session. So sure, GXC spent a lot of money on buybacks this spring, then authorized another $1 billion repurchase program in May. But then the stock collapsed. Feels like they're throwing good money after bad, doesn't it? Imagine was so excited about this new buyback four months ago. In retrospect, it looks absolutely insane. Next up, I'm going to give you two more ill-conceived buybacks in the financial area. Discover Financial and Synchrony Financial, and they're both in the credit card business. Discover shrunk its share count by 8.5% year-to-date, Synchrony 7.2%. Now, the charitable explanation for these large buybacks is simple. Wall Street's been terrified of a recession for over a year now, and the bears were wrong every step of the way. The failed recession thesis caused people to sell off the lower-end consumer credit card plays like Discover and Synchrony. That's why both companies stepped in to repurchase used slugs of their own stock. They were bullish. Mark was bearish. Unfortunately, I think both Discover and Synchrony are secularly challenged businesses. At the end of the day, the lower-end consumer credit space just isn't a great business to begin with, especially when it can so easily be disrupted by fintech outfits that want to reinvent the wheel with stuff like buy now, pay later. Plus, when it comes to more desirable uh, customers, companies like Discover and Synchrony are facing tough competition for the likes of American Express, which can offer better service and bigger rewards. Now, if I were these two companies, I'd be trying to innovate or at least think strategically about how to compete in a new world. Spending fortunes on buybacks doesn't seem to make a lot of sense to me when the underlying business is nothing to write home about. I don't think the businesses are cheap. However, I'll say, I'll say that Discover Financial is a heck of a lot worse than Synchrony. In April, Discover rolled out a 17% dividend hike, and they authorized a new $2.7 billion repurchase program. That was in the wake of a pretty disappointing quarter. But Wall Street treated it as a serious sign of confidence, as much as they should. I mean, it, it, it seemed very positive. As recession fears dwindled in late spring and early summer, Discover stock mounted a furious rally, climbing from the low 90s to the 120s by mid-July. Unfortunately, when these guys reported in mid-July, they gave you another ugly set of numbers. On top of that, management admitted they misclassified tons of credit card accounts, causing them to overcharge merchants for more than 15 years. It's an error that will cost them well over $300 million to correct. And I've got to tell you, it's got to kill some customer relations. Oh, and Discover also announced that after making $700 million of share repurchases in the second quarter, it would pause its share buyback amid an internal compliance review. The stock just got killed. Then, in mid-August, when the CEO announced his resignation, that's never a good sign. Whoa. It's breathtaking how bad this is. Um, it, now, uh, man, all the buybacks this year took place at substantially higher levels. That is just so they bought, box, bought back stock high and had a major, major misstatement. I mean, I got to tell you, well, they, they misjudgment, if you want to call it that, if you want to be charitable. But I, this, is, this is the worst of the buybacks that I've seen. Now, it doesn't help that we've got a new round of worries about the health of the consumer, especially the lower-end consumer, following a bad retail earnings season and the recent rise in long-term interest rates. Student loan repayments are about to resume, too. That's about $70 billion just 
boom out of people's pockets. Can't be good for credit card quality if you're running a company like Discover or Synchrony. Got to expect more defaults down the road. So these stocks are once again totally out of favor in the Wall Street fashion show, which means investors don't care about their big buybacks one bit. Remember, if a company's not doing well and it's buying back stock, it doesn't matter. Here's the bottom line. Sorry for a couple of depressing stories that I just gave you, but I want to reinforce they did a large buyback program alone. It's not a reason to buy a stock. These are not Oracle people. You need positive fundamentals, too, or else you're simply buying stock in a company that ends up being a very bad investment. With that out of the way, I'll come back tomorrow with the buyback monsters that I want you to be thinking about owning. Man, money is back after the break. Coming up, Kramer takes your calls, and the sky is the limit. It's a fast-fire lightning round, next. It is time! It's time for the lightning round. Chris Redford, Marcus Sullivan, Taylor, Bobby, Zinn, Tumblr, my set for the video. Play this out. And then the lightning round is over. Are you ready, Ski? Dad, time for the lightning round. Chris Redford, we start with. Greg in Texas. Greg. Booyah, Professor Kramer. Booyah, well, thank Greg. Thank you for all you do for us. Thank you. Uh, quick question on C, uh, C3AI. Should okay, I, they had a bad uh, quarter. Add? It was just, no, no. I see too much hype, too much fluff. Don't want you in that stock. Bill of Massachusetts, Bill. Booyah, Mr. Kramer. Booyah, Bill. Big Eagles fan. Incredible this year. They're playing great. 2-0? What can I tell you? I, have a quote. I, I love him. Thank you. Good. <laughs> Next call? No, let's keep this one. What's going on? Go I, ahead, Bill. I, uh, I hear good things about Micron and the partnerships. Could you explain some of Micron's advantages over some of the other chip makers, please? Well, Micron thinks it's more proprietary than commodity. Micron's got some. Uh, some higher-end uh, DRAMs that I think really are better. I think Micron, I think we're troughing, and Micron's coming out of the trough. I agree with the hype. The one thing I worry about is two firms have now upgraded, so you got a lot of hot money in. Michael in Texas. Michael. Hey, Jim. Good to talk to you. Good to talk to you, hey, Michael. I was worried about uh, the stock dilution on the Newmont mining. I think Newmont's interesting. I actually like American Eagle, AEM, 3% yield. I think a little bit better managed. Let's go with that one. Let's go to Wiley in Utah. Wiley. Hey, thank you for taking my call, Mr. Kramer. You're welcome. I've I've invested in uh, Jack Henry a while back, J-K-H-Y. It's a very good company, but I do not want to be in the service bureau business for financials and banks right now. I think that group is challenged. I think that we saw some nice Jack Henry people last week at Salesforce, but I don't want to buy the stock. Let's go to Paulina in Virginia. Paulina. Hi, Jim. Uh, You and I both share, I think, confidence in Vlad Kirk, the CEO of Biohaven. Nurtec was the only migraine medication ever worked for me. Right. Um, I've ha- held the stock now for a-, a year for the new Biohaven. And uh, the stock's been puttering in the $18 range, $19 range. How do you see it performing in the well, next? Okay, well, Vlad did miss in his last test. You and I agreed that Nurtech is terrific. Now uh, Pfizer owns that. He did miss in his last test. So now you're really in the speculative no man's land. And uh, I-, I think that if you want to be willing to risk a- pretty much everything, I'm in favor of it, but you have to understand that that's how dicey it is. Let's go to Barbara in California. Barbara. Hi, how are you? I am good, Barbara. How are you? Yeah, thank you for taking my call. Of course. How and go Eagles. Go Birds. Wow. Go A lot of Birds fans. 
Yeah, my, right. my son thinks we're going to win the Super Bowl. All right. Hey, I'm with your son. Yeah. Sounds like a smart guy. He's got horse sense, clearly. How can I help? Yeah. I, I've had Semper Energy stock for over 15 years, and a few weeks ago I noticed that the stock was cut in half and also the dividend was. Is that favorable or unfavorable? Well, what, what is that? That's not... Uh, Semper's doing incredibly well. The, the, the split, uh, it was not anything wrong with Sempra, and I just think you should, if anything, I would like to buy more Sempra. I think Jeff Martin is doing a fantastic job. It's a really interesting situation. I've been talking it over with Jeff uh, Marks for the club. We just have not yet decided to go that far. Kevin in Illinois. Kevin. Hi, Jim. Thank you for taking my call. Oh, you're welcome. I am a happy club member and oh, uh, thank you. appreciate all the sound advice and maybe some good money. Thank you. We're trying to educate uh, as best as we can. Thank you. What's up? Yeah. GTLS uh, chart industries. I um, think it's a terrific infrastructure play. It used to be a huge position in my Chapel Trust probably about 15 years ago. It kind of did nothing. But it's really come on. It's got a lot of analyst coverage right now, and I think it's doing very well. It is highly valued, but I think it's got a lot, a big book of business. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is the conclusion of the Lightning Round. Coming up, nothing runs amok like a super cycle. Keep it here for a cautionary tale starring John Deere. Next. Beware of the super cycle. Anytime you hear this phrase, it usually leads to heartache and, yes, disappointment. Today, Deere caught a harsh downgrade, which talked about how the company saw incredible demand for farm equipment last year. But now that blockbuster period is ending with business returning back to normal. That means the big earnings beats Wall Street had been looking for likely will not be made because the agricultural cycle is fizzling here. But it's by itself, you know, hey, you know what? Pretty typical downgrade. Stock was up 345 to the at the end of May, went to 400. Okay, nice, nice, good shame. But before we shrug our shoulders, we have to remember one very salient fact. Many bulls thought we were in a feed the world agricultural super cycle, one that would lead to perennially higher prices for stocks like Deere, thanks in part to the 13% of the world's food production going offline because of the war in Ukraine. And also the sanctions in Russia. When you hear super cycle, I need you to do this. I need you to think no cycle, nothing, nothing special at all. If you're dealing with a boom and bust industry, no amount of super cycle talk can level things out. It's just going to stay the same as it's always been. Sure enough, Europe, Brazil, and the United States seem to be peaking out, according to Deere's downgrade this morning by Evercore. And while some lines remain strong, the downturn's unassailable. No super cycle. Yes, this decline tells me one thing. The feed the world super cycle isn't worth a warm bucket of spit. You needed to sell stocks like Deere when you first heard that rhetoric, not buy them. This is not the first time we've seen a super cycle meltdown. Let me give you the worst two. When the Permian Basin was initially being plumbed with new fracking techniques, you needed uh, uh, fracking sand to make it work. At the time, three companies dominated that industry, Carbo Ceramics, High Crush, and U.S. Silica. The analysts started talking about how we had a fracking sand super cycle. 
the rich tremendous demand. Permian base was on fire. But what happened? High cost traded 71 and change back at the height of the super call, at the so-called super cycle. Six years later, it's in Chapter 11 bankruptcy. U.S. Silica stayed alive, falling from 73 to 14. But Carbo Ceramics traded as high as 156 before it, too, had to file for bankruptcy. By the way, there's still a shortage of fracking in, but the stocks, they represented the money that these companies made, and there wasn't enough to go around. Memo to super cyclers saying it's not that valuable a commodity. The biggest supercycle bust of all, though, was the coal supercycle, where the lack of capacity coupled with gigantic demand, as far as the eye could see, meant that you could buy these stocks allegedly at any price and just put them away. We had the big three, Alpha Natural Resources, Arch Coal, and Peabody Energy. These coal stocks were endlessly touted as the way to play the growth in China, where they were building an endless number of coal plants. Ten years after I first heard about the coal supercycle, all three went bankrupt. You know what? I think the supercycle term should be retired because it is a kiss of death. These were all, in, a, in the end, some form of a commodity subject to the vagaries of any commodity cycle. So beware when you hear the word. It never holds up to the hype. I like to say there's always a bull market somewhere. I promise you I'll find it just for you right here on Man Money. I'm Jim Cramer. See you tomorrow. Last call starts now. All opinions expressed by Jim Cramer on this podcast are solely Cramer's opinions and do not reflect the opinions of CNBC, NBC Universal, or their parent company or affiliates, and may have been previously disseminated by Cramer on television, radio, internet, or another medium. You should not treat any opinion expressed by Jim Cramer as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of his opinion. Cramer's opinions are based upon information he considers reliable, but neither CNBC nor its affiliates and or subsidiaries warrant its completeness or accuracy, and it should not be relied upon as such. To view the full Mad Money Disclaimer, please visit cnbc.com forward slash disclaimer. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools.